We'll hear argument next, number 98830, Amico Production Company versus Southern Ute Indian Tribe. Mr. Phillips. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, the issue in this case is the meaning of the word coal as used by Congress in reserving the right to mine and remove coal in the 1910 and 1909 Coal Lands Acts. Uh, the Court of Appeals held uh, that, the, that coal also includes methane gas that happens to reside uh, within the coal bed, and that in addition to the right to mine the coal, uh, that the United States and its assinees also have the right uh, to mine and to remove the gas uh, from uh, the coal bed. Uh, uh, the rationale here being that you can not only uh, essentially take out all of the coal bed methane, uh, but that you can leave all of the coal behind. It seems to me that this counterintuitive description of the rights of the United States and its assinees is, uh, is absolutely wrong and that the judgment of the Court of Appeals ought to be reversed. Mr. Phillips, you already brought up just implicitly in what you said a question, uh, an issue that I was going to ask you to speak to, and I'll ask you now. You spoke of mining and removing. The acts involved here, both 1909 and 1910, uh, refer to, I think it was, what, prospecting, mining, and removing the coal? Yep. That's correct, Justice Souter. Was the usage at the time such that it would make sense to speak of mining gas? Uh, not typically, although, to be honest with you, I wish I could make more of that argument, Justice Souter, but if you look at the 1914 Act and its description of dealing with gas and oil, phosphate, and the other uh, minerals that it identifies there, it uses essentially the same they, language. They use it generically. So while I'd like to take advantage of that particular language, I can't. On the other hand, it, it is still absolutely clear, I think, to go back to the word coal, which is the pivotal uh, term in this particular statute, that you would hardly find a word that is more commonly understood by the average individual in 1909 and 1910. It was the source of energy for 75 percent of this nation's energy. And Congress, according to this Court, at that time acted in a practical way and defined the rights in practical terms that could be understood by average homesteaders. Well, it, I mean, as I understand it, you, you assert the right not only to take out the methane, that, uh, the, the gas that happens to be in the coal when you mine the coal. You assert the right to, uh, by whatever means, drill a hole and take out just the gas and leave the coal, right? Well, I don't have the right to take the coal. You're right, Justice Scalia. All I have is the, the right to the natural gas. Right. It's, it's my opponents who claim that they have the right to, that based on their right to the coal, that they, in fact, can take out all the gas, leave all the coal behind. And that, what is to what me, if, Justice Scalia, is the counterintuitive nature of the, of the whole there, there, There's some water in, in the, that, that it adheres to the coal as well. I mean, a certain, that, that is in its composition. Suppose somebody, suppose 
somebody had water rights to this land, would they, would they be able to extract the water from the coal? There, there is a fundamental difference between water and, and coal bed methane, Justice Scalia, both chemically and as, and as a matter of law. First of all, as you well would understand, out in Colorado and in the West, the rights to water are essentially held by the states, and the relationship between the states and private parties are fundamentally different than the relationships involved in a litigation like this one. But second of all, the coal that — excuse me, the water that is in the coal is chemically bonded, or at least some of it is chemically bonded to the coal. And it is not our position that chemically bonded elements, which are in fact constituents of the coal, are subject to removal by those who have rights to other, other minerals that may exist. Our basic point here is that coal bed methane is, is essentially a physically separate item that just happens to reside within the coal bed. Well, well what if the coal uh, miner digs into the coal and in the process releases this gas that you say uh, the petitioner owns? Um, is the coal miner liable to the petitioner for the release of that Gas? Well, it's going to depend on the essentially the state tort law or the tort law that would be applied to it. In, in ordinary circumstances, under the rule of accommodation, each party with respective rights, when they conflict with respect to particular minerals, have a certain amount of right to get at their property. And so the coal miner is allowed. But as a practical to. matter, what would happen to the coal miners who are trying to take out the coal and at the same time releasing gas, if your position is correct? Well, I think if, if they release the gas and we don't assert any rights to the gas, we have no basis to come well, in let's after let's say you do assert the rights to the gas. That's why you're here. Right. Then the solution to that problem is to say to the coal miner, if you go ahead and waste the gas under those circumstances, you do so on notice of the, of, of, of the claim, of our claim to that gas, and that claim is one that ought to be respected by the courts. It's and the there's same. an accommodation, then, that will be worked out between the coal rights owner and the gas rights. The same accommodation problem arises when oil and, and gas rights are owned by different parties at different levels. Exactly. Uh, it is precisely the same, Justice Kennedy. And, and Justice O'Connor, it's no different from the surface owner's rights. Well, except, the that, the, rights except that the the gas doesn't adhere to the oil the way it adheres to the coal. I mean, you can say he's taken away your methane if he just, just fills up a truck with coal and carts it off. It isn't just that there are pockets of gas, as I understand it. There is gas that adheres to the coal when he carts it away. And, 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 and indeed, some of the energy that is, uh, that, that is derived from burning the coal is, in fact, derived from burning the methane. Well, that, the, the amount that's derived from burning the methane is negligible as a scientific matter. So that's not likely to be particularly important. But second of all, I mean, the point of this, I think, is to step back and say, what did Congress understand by all of this when it made the reservation of coal? Did Congress mean to say that we were going to engage in a, an extended chemical or chemistry analysis of this problem? Or did Congress say, look, we know coal when we see coal, and we know coal bed methane when we know that because it comes out and gets vented as a part of the process of mining the coal. But that's the point I was making, at least as to the methane that is not in a pocket. In a pocket, I think you make a strong point that Congress couldn't have intended that. But I think, on the other other hand, as to that methane that is not in a separate pocket, but has really been, I guess it isn't absorbed, but it just adheres to the coal, I can't imagine that Congress thought that when somebody loaded up a truck with coal from his coal mine, he was stealing your methane. I, I don't doubt that, they don't, that there's no notion that we have a right to make an argument along those lines. Once the coal's been removed and out, I don't see that we have any basis for going in there. But the more fundamental question is, do they have the right, 
when we own the gas inside the coal, whether it is adsorbed or held in a free state, to go in, drill into that coal, and release all of the gas that otherwise belongs to us. An argument there is clearly, no, you can't. That cannot be the rule. Mr. Phillips, you said what, when Congress used the word coal, it had a meaning. And in 1910, if I were to put the question, who has dominion over this gas? I mean, as I understand it, it was bad gas in 1910. And wouldn't the answer be, of course, the coal miner is responsible, has the care of, the guard of that gas, has dominion over it, and if there's an explosion, the coal owner is going to be responsible. Wasn't that the understanding that Congress had in 1910 when this gas was not considered any kind of an asset? No, what, no. There's, I mean, there's no evidence that Congress had an understanding that the coal miner had, quote, dominion over the gas. What Congress knew in 1909 and 10, just as we do today, is that there is such a thing as coal and there's such a thing as gas, and that Congress had the authority to reserve either coal or gas or all of the minerals or none of the minerals. There had to be some control over this when it was a hazardous waste. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, some court law imposed in 1910 have responsibility for handling that bad gas. Yes, the coal miners had to vent the gas in order to allow the mining to go forward. That's that's absolutely correct. So they get they had the control over the gas to see that it didn't cause injury. Well, you you describe it. Uh, Justice Ginsburg has control. I describe it as they were permitted to waste the gas in order to exercise their rights over the coal. It didn't have anything to do with their, quote, rights over the gas. There are lots of situations where you have conflicting property interests where your right is to waste or otherwise injure somebody else's property rights in order effectively to protect your own ability to use your own property. But what that doesn't give you is then the title to the other to the other property. So if I go through the to get coal and go through the surface, in injuring the surface, I don't get titled to the surface. I'm responsible to a certain extent, but but I don't get titled to it. And the point here is that Congress was dealing with a practical subject in a practical way, trying to decide who should get title to, to what element, to what minerals. And in nineteen oh nine and nineteen ten, Congress took a baby step in depriving the patent holders of their rights to a full fee property, and it said, we're going to take back the coal. And the reason it did that was for a very specific problem. There was a coal famine in the West, and Congress needed the coal. Now, Why doesn't it make sense to say that that, that methane, which, is, which has been adsorbed, as, as, as you put it, is coal? But that methane, which is in pockets and, and, and separate under the ground, uh, is not coal. But, but that, that's not your argument. No, your argument is that all of it, whether it's adds Exactly. Bec- and the reason for that, Justice Scalia, is that the method of extraction is identical. The point of this is, once I decrease the pressure, all of the, all of the gas moves. Not just the gas that's in a free form, but the gas that's adsorbed. The adsorption, these van der Waals forces, which I am 100 percent sure Congress never thought about in 1909 and 1910, they break immediately upon the reduction of pressure, and then the gas flows out. That's why it's it's meaningless to distinguish one from the other, because the extraction process is identical. May I just follow up on one of Justice Scalia's questions, because I 
I, I think I understand. It's a tough case. It's a tough case. There's no doubt about that. But supposing your extraction method allowed you to take large lumps of coal out. I know often it's pulverized, but you had large lumps of coal. You used pickaxe, old-fashioned way. You load it on a truck. You put it out in the yard, and you sell it to a wholesaler. Those large lumps of coal still have some methane within them. Am I right on that fact? There will be, at least for a few, a few days. Who owns that methane? We own that methane. But there's nothing we can you do about it. You still own that even though it's Sure, we own that methane, but there's nothing we can do about that methane because, again, in order to get methane anywhere, just like — because methane's natural gas. It's like every other natural ga gas in the world. It's no different if it's in coal or if it's in limestone or sandstone. It's all if chemically large, the same. If a large piece of coal happened to have some foreign object in it, whatever it might be, a piece of gold, an old shoe or whatever it was, you would own that old shoe, too. As I understand that, I mean, the reservation of rights is quite clear here. Congress meant only to reserve the coal, and that's what it reserved. And not the rest what of whatever it happens to be. The, but not whatever might be within a piece of coal. That's correct. And if you go back to the, to the, um, to the Smoot case, for instance, the Illinois Court of Appeals decision that, that was rendered at around the, the early part of the 20th century, talking about pyrite and coal, and they were both removed, and one was a waste product for the coal, and the Illinois Court of Appeals, relying on general common law principles, said the owner of the pyrite is different from the owner of the coal. They are separate estates. Was, now, there, was there ever a commercial practice of taking the coal in the ordinary sense uh, that we think of a lump of, of, of black stuff? Uh, and uh, refining it or processing, processing it to get gas? There was a, a very uh, early stage process. There's some literature on that. I'm if that had happened, would you have said that they were mining coal or extracting gas? They are mining coal because that you have to take the coal. You have to work on it. We're not seeking. It's like if you take the timber and make it paper, you're, you're taking timber, not paper. Exactly. We, we are not saying that we are allowed to, to use solvents, which the government relies upon as part of its argument that this is a constituent of coal. We're not saying we're allowed to use heat in order to get gas out of it. All we're saying is that we're allowed to use the same simple extraction process that we would use if we were trying to get the gas underneath the coal. I mean, we can go right you, through the know, same coal seam. Do you know whether or not in um, the West Virginia and Pennsylvania area, maybe you don't know the answer to this question, did the common lease say that um, uh, the uh, let, let, lessee is entitled to extract coal, reserving to the owner all other minerals? I, I don't know the answer to that, Justice Kennedy. Um, Mr. Phillips, um, after the uh, legislation you're talking about, 1909-1910, subsequently Congress uh, enacted other laws, I believe, in subsequent land-grant legislation to reserve uh, gas estates, did it? Yes, Justice O'Connor, and I think that reveals plainly Congress's uh, ability well, to distinguish gas what, from What is the best indication that in those subsequent legislation, in the subsequent legislation reserving gas to the government, that it intended uh, the gas to include uh, the coal bed methane? Well, if you look at the, the regulatory definition of gas as it's implemented in the coal, I mean, excuse me, in the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920, and in the Mineral Leasing Act, remember, Congress decides how it's going to obtain monies for the rights that it reserved under both the 1909-1910 Acts and the 1914 Acts. The definition of, of gas in that statute absolutely is dead on with coal bed methane because all it's talking about is a substance that at ordinary in ordinary circumstances will expand uh, infinitely 
Uh, and that is exactly so what Congress the did will later do. have legislation that reserved gas that you think can persuasively be shown to include coal bed methane. Not only can it be persuasively shown to do that, but the Solicitor of the Interior in 1991 took precisely that position and, and concluded that coal bed methane is a gas deposit within the meaning of the, of the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920. That decision has never been challenged. That decision is absolutely correct today. And, and, and that's the reason. Congress has always known the difference between coal and gas and has treated them fundamentally differently. Mr. Phillips, could you explain to me a little more about this accommodation? Because am I right in thinking that the coal miners still must exercise dominion over that gas, at least to the extent of preventing hazardous conditions in the mine? Yes, but that that doesn't come from ordinary property concepts. That comes from federal and state regulatory requirements for the protection of the mine workers. But in doing that, some of it may... Escape. Oh, absolutely. And we don't, we don't have any claim to that. We, the truth is we, the, the accommodation doctrine will clearly never give us the opportunity to get recovery for that. I mean, we can make an argument about it, but you won't recover for that. But what we're talking about is the right to actually mine and remove the natural and, gas. And how That's does it want. determine who goes first? So the coal miner says, I want to get out the coal. And you say, well, we want to get the methane out first. Well, you're going to have to get the methane out before you can mine the coal. Otherwise, it's a safety hazard. Remember, the, the, the fundamental point here is if you take the coal bed methane out of the coal, what you have left is coal. That's why you know that this is not a constituent of so coal. So in other words, you would be saying you can't mine until we do our thing first. That's correct. Mr. Phillips, says, I think you contrasted the, the uh, clear advertence of Congress in 1920 to coal bed methane uh, as at least against the language that it used in, in the time we're concerned with here. Was there any technological advance during that period of time? In other words, was uh, was there a, a way of extracting coal bed methane in 1920 that was not known or at least had not been developed and was not familiar in 1990? No, the, the basic technology hasn't changed. The only point is that it became economically feasible. But they, they knew it just as well in 1990 exactly as they did in 1920. the same information. That's correct. I, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Davidson. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As you know, I'm here on behalf of the Amici states. There are five Amici states which represent one-tenth of the Union. We're here on behalf of our citizens and ourselves. We're here as friend of the Court because we believe the, the uh, uh, decision was inherently wrong. But we're also here in our own interest. We, as Amici states, we, as states, are owners of lands that are subject to these very same acts. Upon our admission to statehood for the creation of the states and for the benefits of our public schools, we were granted land specifically for the purpose of funding education, and we are constitutionally in our enabling acts required to <clears throat> dedicate the proceeds from those lands to the purpose of our state educational systems. In 1906, uh, with the presidential withdrawal of the coal lands, we were not allowed to select in lieu lands. Now, in lieu lands, uh, first of all, upon admission to the states, the states were granted specific sections of land within each township. 
but oftentimes those lands had already been homesteaded or withdrawn. So we were entitled then to take in lieu lands instead of those lands. But with the 1906 reservation, that also applied to in lieu lands. So the states were in the position of not being able to select in lieu lands until a 1912 Act came along that's referenced in our brief that specifically incorporated the provisions of the 1909 and 1910 Acts. So that's how the states are here. That's, that's why we are here as property owners as well as on behalf of our citizens. <clears throat> in these acts, the states received title to everything but the coal on our subsequent school selections in lieu lands. The Amici states here are holders of tens of thousands of acres for the benefit of our public schools. Again, they're constitutionally required for school funding. We also have regulatory authority, and given time, I'm going to get to that. We have regulatory agencies that are responsible for oil and gas uh, production and the regulation of oil and gas production, as well as separate entities that are responsible for mineral production, such as coal production. So anyway, we're here both as the owner and regulators today. Now, as the Court recognized in the Andrews case, Andrews versus Utah, and that's cited in, in all of the briefs, I believe, these lands were granted to the states under a solemn agreement for the support of our public schools. It was an inducement for the states to come into the Union. And in inducing the states to come into the Union, they granted the lands for the purpose of our public you, schools. Do you think the states would have reacted differently whether they knew how the case, this case would be decided? Your Honor, I don't believe I can accurately answer that. But I do believe that the states took into account that they were getting everything in under these acts but coal. And in making Except their, the coal, but did they know exactly what the coal was? The states knew what the coal was at the time, Your Honor. I submit that everyone knew what coal was at the time, and, and the, the acts that had preceded the 1906 reservation had been acts under which if there was a coal seam that actually appeared on the surface or if there was active mining, then those particular lands would be reserved because then the states or the, or the private parties would know that there was coal because it was physically there, physically present, something that was tangible. No, but isn't it at least conceivable they might have thought, well, we get everything except whatever's in the coal seam? Your Honor, that was not the understanding, I believe, of the states at the time. It was not the understanding of the parties. It hasn't been, and Your Honor, if I might, it hasn't been the subsequent administration. It hasn't been the subsequent administration either under the state's own regulatory schemes or under the practice of any of the parties. As was alluded to earlier, the, the coal bed methane is obtained by normal drilling techniques, not by coal removal techniques that were known to the parties at the time. Those removal techniques, uh, as uh, Mr. Justice Scalia, I think, pointed out, those were when you took a chunk of coal, and you took a chunk of coal or several chunks of coal, and you loaded them into a wagon or subsequently a truck, and you hauled them away. Now, in response to, to Justice Scalia's question regarding ownership, the gas, the natural gas, the, the, the very faint remnants of natural gas that, that would remain in that coal under normal mining law practices, would belong to the owner of the gas estate. But the mining practices have always followed the rules of, of reasonable development and reasonable diligence. And in following the rules of reasonable development and reasonable diligence, at this point in time, even now in 1999, it's not reasonable to extract the methane gas from those chunks of coal that are removed from a coal mine. 
But while they're in the ground, and you can use normal gas drilling techniques to produce those produce the gas, then that is reasonable in some circumstances. There are still many coal beds throughout the country to which uh, uh, no coal bed methane is ever going to be produced, probably, at least under present technology. I I take I want to make sure I understand one thing. You're you're claiming that the the gas that is to be distinguished from the coal is not only the gas that has formed or collected in a pocket in the ground, but the gas that can be extracted from the coal while the coal still is in the ground. Is that correct? Your Honor. You're talking about both kinds of you're, — you're talking about gas uh, in, in both those aspects. Is that correct? In the simplest of terms, Your Honor, what I'm talking about is what can be removed with drilling techniques. And in the, in the instance of coal, while there may be some pockets, typically what forms is cleats, where you got a layer of coal and another somewhat layer of coal, and then you got interspersed those, those little tiny particles that, that respondents have referred to. And when the water is extracted, these cleats allow the gas that's adsorbed in there to come up through, because the pressure is released, come up through the, the hole, the drilling hole, and then be escaped either into the atmosphere and you say that's yours? That would belong to yeah. whoever is the owner of the remainder of the estate. And you say the gas, even in the lump of coal that's on the, on the cart, is technically yours, although there's nothing you can do about it. But you say that's, still, that's yours, too? That's correct, Your Honor. But the doctrine of reasonable accommodation uh, takes account of that, presumably. Your Honor, that protects the miner of the hard coal. That's exactly right, Your Honor. And the doctrine of accommodation is something that the states and state court systems and, and particularly state regulators have had to deal with, with ever since mineral activity has had ever commenced. Uh, when oil drilling was first started, the natural gas that was associated with oil drilling, and the first oil well in Wyoming, anyway, I believe was prior to statehood, uh, 1884. But the natural gas that comes up with the oil well was <clears throat> flared initially because it wasn't valuable for anything. But as was pointed out in, in an earlier question, where the oil and gas estates are separate, that, that can't be done anymore. And, in fact, the oil and gas, the state oil and gas regulators ensure that that kind of flaring doesn't happen because the states have an interest, even where it's not their own property, as such, the states have an interest because of severance taxes and other, other interests that the states have in taxing those products that there be conservation, that the mineral resources, whatever they may be, be conserved. And so, therefore, the oil and gas commissions don't allow flaring and don't allow wasting of natural gas products. <clears throat> Your Honor. Mr. Davidson, am I, am I right in thinking in relation to your opening remarks that the states when they came into the union is this, with this as an inducement, could not have been contemplating the asset of this gas because practically there was no way economically that it could be extracted. Your Honor, with specific respect to coal bed methane gas, I believe that answer is that that is correct, that they could not have specifically been thinking about coal bed methane gas because it was not a valuable Resource. There was no value. There was no ability to get the pipelines in and get the gas developed and get it out. It, it just was not a valuable commodity at that time. But just as natural gas that's associated with oil production has now become a valuable commodity, so is the natural gas associated with coal production. And so the states, as owner of everything but what was specifically reserved, and keep in mind, Wyoming versus the United States establishes a standard that 
that only what is specifically reserved for the federal government can apply to the states. And the legislation is to be construed liberally for the benefit of the state, contrary to the, to the presumption that the respondents would like to raise with respect to states in particular who took under the very same acts as, as, as the private parties with respect to states in per- particular, grants, land grants to the states have to be construed liberally. Well, there was no reservation to the U.S. of gas. And the U.S. at the time of passing these lands to the states certainly knew the existence of gas. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Davidson. Mr. Ships, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When Congress passed the 1909 and 1910 Acts, the substance it reserved for subsequent disposition was the same substance that we know today, coal. And common descriptions of coal in 1909 and 1910 made reference to the occluded gaseous constituents of coal dissolved within the mass or body of coal. If if the methane uh, comes out in in drilling as, as in gaseous form, and I'm a chemistry student, is, is the formula for the methane gas the same as the formula for, say, uh, hard anthracite coal? Well, there, there is no specific formula for coal. It's a heterogeneous substance. The formula for gas, uh, once it's, it's removed to the surface, CH4 would be the formula for methane, would be the same formula as the methane molecule located as an integral component of the coal. But if you're describing the the coal in chemical terms, you have to add a a lot of other uh, chemical descriptions. There there is no chemical description for coal. Coal, Coal is a generic term. Coal talks about inorganic material, organic material. Uh, Definitionally, it's based upon the relative volume or weight of those very heterogeneous materials versus uh, Organic material. Always oh, hard, though. <laughs> it is, well, it's the look at glass of fluid and say that's coal, or or uh, you know a balloon filled with some gas and say it's filled with coal. Well, it does pass the hit in the head hurt test. Well, well but, but but that but that but that's an important point. If 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 Blackacre has coal in the hard form, and it's right next to Whiteacre, and Whiteacre does not have any coal in extractable solid form. And you drill on Whiteacre and you begin draining gas uh, from the adjacent coal field. Are you in Whiteacre? Are you taking coal? That's your position. No, our position is that if you own the property, the measurable boundaries, whether they be adjacent property boundaries or subsurface boundaries, and you complete a well into the property that you own, then the rule of capture makes clear that you have no liability for draining coal, from draining gas or a fugacious well, substance. But in common sense terms, under your theory, you are taking coal. Well, you read your brief. No, uh, what we are saying is coal is defined by the location of the material within it. And when Congress was passing uh, these statutes, it clearly intended to reserve the entire coal estate, the entire coal resource, and it intended to reserve a resource that was located in nature and found in nature. Petitioner's argument is, is one which can prevail only if you concur that Congress intended to reserve a degasified, dehydrated lump of, 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 of a resource that does not exist in nature. And Congress made it clear. Well, the federal government didn't adopt your position until very recently, until this thing became valuable. And until then, the federal government took the position uh, urged by Mr. Phillips. 
Justice O'Connor, I respectfully disagree. The federal government has taken a number of positions relative to this case. Well, they've danced, oh, they've, early, they've, I'm, I'm they've danced all around the maypole on it. <laughs> they have indeed, Mr. Chief Justice. But, but certainly early but when Congress — At the time, at the time that it became uh, necessary to rely on alternative energy forms and it appeared that coal, bank, coal bed methane gas was valuable — the government actively encouraged people to take the position that the CBM was not part of the coal and to develop it and gave them uh, tax incentives to do so. And now uh, it takes a position uh, like yours, but it certainly didn't. Let me say that with respect to Congress and recent, recent incentives for developing the resource, Congress has never never expressed a viewpoint with respect to ownership of, of coal bed methane occluded in coal. In fact, its definition is that coal bed, coal seam gas is occluded within the resource. Well, the attorneys the for, for the uh, federal agencies dealing with it certainly took that position. And we believe and have believed throughout this litigation and, and expressed the viewpoint that they were sadly wrong. And in fact, they were, they were doing — they were not looking at the statutory language here. Here Congress reserved coal in its natural condition. Coal deposits had made it clear that's what it was reserving. And, and the common understanding in 19, 1909 and 1910 by the person that held a piece of coal that he thought or she thought that he owned or she owned wasn't that, oh, I own everything here except the iron pyrite. I own everything here except the sulfur. I own everything here except the moisture. I own everything except the methane. The common person in 1909 and 1910 didn't understand the details of microporosity, the complexities of absorption, but he, that person certainly thought that this lump of coal that I own, when I put it in my furnace or I put it in my stove, I'm not burning somebody else's property. And that's the position. That is the position that is taken by the petitioners in this no, case. No, I don't, I don't think it is. They, they, they acknowledge that any easement for extraction um, implies uh, reasonable methods of extracting. And if you must take some gas that adheres to the coal, uh, that's just a reasonable exercise of your right to excavate. But that's far different from saying that you own all the gas that's in free form and that remains. It's quite well, different. We're not talking about gas in free form. We're talking about gas that's absorbed in the coal. It's a gas that's a component of the coal and, and, that's, and that seems to be clear and undisputed but the, with respect to the coal to that's experts. ultimately extracted is in no way less valuable, is it, because there has been a, a, a drilling that preceded the extraction of the coal. It, it might be more difficult and expensive to extract the coal, but the coal itself is no less valuable. Well, it, 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 that begs the question as to what you define as coal, but it certainly no longer has the value of the coal bed methane that was absorbed within the coal. And in terms of conventional... Conventional okay, uses I, want to, I, I want to be very clear on this. Two cases. One case where there's no uh, extraction of gas and the, and the coal is mined and the methane is flared off uh, and, there's a, and there's a lump of black solid coal. Case one. Case two, uh, there has been drilling previously and the black solid coal is thereafter removed. Uh, in, in, in your submission... The, the, the coal in the latter instance is less valuable? It, it is because is it there no longer in the contains, potentially no longer contains. If, it depends upon if you're looking upon changes in mining techniques and changes in commerce. Uh, clearly, 
it no longer contains the heat value of the coal bed methane. Now, in 1910 and 1910, that was a hazard, and that wasn't a value then. But the, but the definition of what we own doesn't change based upon improvements in mining techniques, but in fact, Justice Kennedy, the, the, the uh, depletion of that value, which now has become, under current technologies, very valuable, is a loss of the coal estate that we would no longer have. It's a loss of the coal resource well, that we would no again, longer have. Well, but then again, that assumes the, the answer on your part. <laughs> it, it, it also incorporates what was understood at the, in terms of the circumstances of this legislation. What the USGS was doing in 1909 and 1910, Congress relied upon the U.S. Geological Survey to determine what was, what were coal resources, and the U.S. Geological Survey expressly looked to not just the present value of coal, but to the potential value of coal when it made its classification of lands. And, and the USGS, with the encouragement and funding from Congress, investigated the science of how gas was held in coal, and the USGS looked to the potential fuel values of other gases that could be removed from coal. USGS was looking at, through the producer generator, uh, uh, how, can you, how can we obtain the gases from coal as a fuel source? And that, that certainly, uh, we think, is significant in this case. And simultaneously... Mr. Ships, I, I don't know yeah, enough about good. mining techniques. Uh, um, suppose uh, there's a pool of oil under my neighbor's land, and just a little bit of it comes onto my land. Can I sink a well and suck out all of his oil? Is that all my oil? It, it's, it's all your, everything that you obtain by drilling a well on your land right. that happens to capture migrating substances from his land, you have no liability to him for, and you own once you're reduced to possession. In, in, but every, state, in every state of the Union, you can drain? Gee, I didn't think I, that, I, that's, that, not, that's not, some states you can drain, some states you can't. My understanding is that you can do that in any state, even states with a stratum theory if they're talking about fugacious minerals. If in Pennsylvania you drill a well on your land and your neighbor happens to have a fugacious material located in a stratum on his land, so long as you complete your well in the property that you own, you have no liability for what you recover. And, that's the, and actually, you don't get to any different place whether you're talking about a stratum theory state or whether you're not. But ha haven't state regulators uh, uh, changed the common law in that regard with unitization and that sort of thing so that you no longer can, even if the common law allows simply drill straight down and dr drain your neighbor's pool? Oh, no, no, that's frequently correct, Mr. Chief Justice. There are rules and regulations as to how this can be done. And, in fact, rules and regulations with regard to what happened in this case made it clear that until 1988, the coal formation and neighboring formation, sandstone formations were treated as one producing zone. When were those rules and regulations adopted? 1988, Your Honor, Mr. Well, Mr. Chief. They scarcely then speak to the intent of Congress in 1910, I take it. That's, that's correct. They, they do not speak. But they do go to the impact question that's been raised by a counselor from Wyoming. Well, well, you say that they cannot be one producing zone anymore, so that if you have, let's say, a pool of, uh, of, of methane that is uh, surrounded by limestone, but it, it, it is contiguous to a, a coal bed, you, you, you wouldn't be allowed to drain. You, you would say they're taking away your coal, that they have no right to that methane, even though it's fugacious. No, we, we take the position that no one can drill and complete a well 
in the tribe's coal deposits, which was the term that was used by Congress in 1909 and 1910. No, but they're doing it next door. They're doing it next door. They they drill a well and they get out the the, uh, uh, pocket of of methane. But as we've heard, what will happen is that pocket will will suck the methane out of your coal. If, if, If they think they can do that, then they're perfectly welcome to attempt to do that, subject to whatever the rules may be that have adjusted the common law relative to pooling and use. But you say it's not its not fugacious gas. You say it's your coal. You say it shouldn't be treated that, the way oil, a pool of oil is, or, or a pocket of gas that, uh, that, that, that traverses two properties. You're saying this methane in my coal is coal. It's, it's my coal. It's not your gas or anybody's gas. Right? That's correct. So we have to have some new rules for, uh, uh, for, for what you do when you drill into a pocket of methane if you're sucking it off of somebody's coal. If they just they don't have the right to drill into our coal deposit in the first instance. They're, if they're for not some drilling reason, into your coal deposit. They're drilling into this pocket of methane. Your coal deposit is next door. Oh, oh, I figured This part. methane comes up. They take the methane, if, but it, it — it, if, if they're able to do that, then under the rule of capture, we don't have a claim. We're saying that they're capturing your coal is is your theory. They are not capturing methane. The location location of the methane molecule is critical to our position. If it's located in the coal deposit, if it is an integral component of the coal deposit, then it was reserved by Congress in 1909 and 1910 and is now owned by us. Suppose that it is commercially feasible to extract the methane without affecting the value of the coal estate. Uh, Is is it still coal under your theory? Yes. And they can't do that, notwithstanding what they said. When they, when they drill those wells, they remove up to, remove up to a hundred tons of solid coal with regard to every well, well bore. They acknowledge that we own even the solid coal. They cannot, they cannot remove coal bed methane from the coal and leave all the coal there. They have to remove the solid coal. They do remove the solid coal. They have to inject things into the coal beds under, under tremendous pressure. Hundreds of tons of sand gets injected into our well, then, coal deposit. Then that's just a question of the law of reasonable accommodation. Except that the accommodation here was expressly established by Congress in the statute. If there's, this is not a common law accommodation. The statute said well, that, that they had a very strange way to do it, but to, to conflate the death the definition of, of gas and coal. No, they also are other provisions in the statute, Justice Kennedy, that dealt specifically with the relative rights of an agricultural patentee relative to the coal deposits and what the, the owner of the coal deposits would have relative uh, to the surface estate. And the only exception that Congress made for the agricultural patentee to have any dominion over to the coal deposit was the right to mine coal for domestic purposes until the coal deposit was, was disposed to a third party. And once that took place, he gave up any right. He disclaimed any right as a condition for even getting a patent, limited patent to these properties. He agreed, I will no longer have anything to do with that coal deposit. And, and that's, that's the relative right of accommodation. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you for it. Thank you, Mr. Schiffs. Uh, Mr. Manier, we'll hear from you.
Thank you, Mr. Mr. Minister. Sometime during your argument, uh, Mr. Davidson suggested that the principle you relied on, the point of where a grant is ambiguous, it is resolved in favor of the government, does not imply uh, does not apply where the grant is to a state. He cited the case of Wyoming against the United States. Sometime during your argument, could you address that? Yes, Your Honor, I will do that. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Congress did not distinguish between coal and CBM in 1909 because a reservation of coal at that time had to include CBM. There are four reasons why. First, coal in its natural state always contains CBM as an inherent product of the coalification process. Second, miners in 1909 necessarily had to remove the CBM as a part of the mine coal. Third, the miners had no way of setting the CBM apart or leaving it behind. Congress used the term coal in light of those realities to describe what nature had deposited and what miners mined. This usage is not only the ordinary, practical, common sense usage, but it is also consistent with what science tells us about coal, both now and in 1909. Well, it certainly wasn't the position of the government's lawyers uh, back when all of a sudden it was discovered that the coal bed coal bed methane gas was valuable and should its development should be encouraged. Uh, Justice O'Connor, you're referring to the 1981 solicitor's opinion in which the government took the position that the coal bed gas was not a part of the, the coal. Uh, and which was withdrawn, as I recall, after this litigation began. That is correct. And the reason why it was withdrawn is because it proved that the, the reasoning in that opinion was deficient. It didn't consider well, I thought maybe it had something to do with the fact that all of a sudden it was valuable and the federal government thought it would like to have that value. Justice O'Connor, that can't be the case because it was known to be value, valuable in 1981 when that opinion was issued. What the solicitor has tried to do in both 1981 and, present, and at present is to try and resolve this rather difficult technical issue. Its first attempt in 1981 proved to be deficient because it did not consider what we think are all of the important considerations, including the practicalities that I just went through, the four points that I just raised with regard to mining coal in 1909. In addition, it uh, relied very heavily on statements in the legislative history that we think just cannot bear the weight that they were given. And finally, it did not take into any account some of the scientific aspects of coal that were known both in 1909 and are known presently. I'm referring to the Joint Appendix. Well, Congress, uh, after the 1909-1910 acts, later passed legislation dealing with uh, federal land grants reserving gas in some circumstances to the federal government. Yes, Do you think Justice. it thought then it was reserving coal bait? Coal bed methane gas? Well, we think that with regard to those, those reservations, it was probably ambiguous what Congress was reserving. The 1914 Act, I think, is the act that you're referring to. In that case, those were lands that were determined not to contain coal. So the issue probably in Congress's mind never would have come up. Uh, it's our current position that in, under the 1914 Act that certainly the United States did reserve the coal, the, the methane gas, natural gas, that lies outside of the coal seams. And, of course, it's not clear on this record whether there's any 1914 lands that actually do contain. What about the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920? The Mineral Leasing Act of 1920 dealt with the question of disposition of what had been previously reserved. So we don't think that it actually touches upon the issue of what had been reserved 10 years before. But Congress did treat this sort of thing separately from coal. It treated gas separately from coal. But it, it just treated CBM as a gas, did it? It did not make specific mention of CBM. This issue did not really come, 
come to the forefront until new technology was developed to develop the CBM. And contrary to what Mr. Uh, Mr. Phillips says, that technology was not in existence in 1909. CBM is not developed through traditional wells. Rather, it requires extension, extensive so-called stimulation of the coal bed. You have to enter the coal bed, fracture the coal bed, and inject materials and remove water in order to get the methane out. So the mining techniques for removing CBM are quite different from the techniques for removing natural gas from conventional limestone. Where, where do we go to read about this development in technology from 1909 to 1920? Could you give me a good source? Uh, yes, you can go to the joint appendix. Uh, included in the joint appendix in volume two is a, a, volume, uh, a submission that was provide, provided by Mr. Fassett, pages 553 through 578. Uh, he describes CBM production in some detail, including CBM production in the Fruitland Formation, which has some unusual aspects to it. But does, well. does he describe the development of the technology in this period? I'm not sure. That's, that's, what's, that's what's important to me, because if the, you know, for obvious reasons, if the, if the technology has, has developed, uh, you're going to draw a very different inference, I think, uh, from, from the use of the language in, in 1920 from, from what would be the case if there had been no development in the technology. Yes, I think that might be right. Now, the, the type of development, I think that the fast. So, so does this, does, does uh, the, the period, the, the material in the joint appendix uh, describe that technological development in that, that period of roughly 11 years? Uh, it dis no, it does. I think that All right, where will I find that? Where will I find that? I don't think the technology had developed between 1909 and 1920. The technology was actually developed as a form of removing natural gas from so-called tight sands, which came uh, into the fore in the 50s or 60s. I don't believe there was any CBM production whatsoever before 1950. So Mr. Phillips was right then in, in his statement to me that, the, that there had been no technological change during that period of time. But there was no way to develop CBM in 1909. There was no way to develop CBM in 1920. I believe that the first commercial development of CBM took place in 1953. Now, I, I, I think that one thing that we have not discussed here this, after, uh, this morning that I think is important, and that is the, the response of the state courts to this problem. Two states have had extensive experience with this matter, Alabama and Pennsylvania. And both of those uh, courts, applying traditional mining law, concluded that CBM belongs to the owner of the coal seam. And we think that's quite important. These are states that have dealt with the practical problems of CBM development. I would also point out that the solicitor's 1981 opinion did not have the benefit of those two uh, opinions from those two courts. Now, the Montana Did those arise because the uh, owners attempted to dispose of the estate separately after they'd made uh, a, a previous conveyance of the coal right? Or? Uh, yes, those are both cases in which the coal was conveyed away, and the question was whether the surface owner continued to own uh, the gas in the coal seam. And in both of those cases, and I think the Pennsylvania case is particularly instructive, the Hogue case, the court indicated that, well, whatever coal constituent and it treated CBM as a coal constituent that is in the coal seam remains uh, part of the ownership of that coal seam. It's common in hard rock minerals to view the ownership of the deposit as the ownership of the strata itself. And I'd like to make mention to, to the two cases that I think that uh, uh, petitioners have cited that would appear to be contrary authority. One is the Smoot case, which involved a seam of well, iron pyrites. The, the case is called Smoot versus Consolidated Coal. It was an intermediate decision from the Illinois courts in 1907. That was a case that dealt with a seam of pyrite 
that was present in the coal stratum. And the pyrite actually had to be removed to make the coal marketable. The court indicated that the owner of the surface did not give up his owner of his separate seam or, or uh, seam of pyrite, which ranged from about a one inch thick down to about the thickness of a paper, of paper. But it was clearly discernible. And the court also indicated that a different rule would apply if the iron pyrite was, in fact, intermixed within the coal, which often happens, I should add. Is that because of the notion of accommodation principles? The court actually used, referred to the principle of appurtenances, which is the notion that if you're removing one material with another material, the two necessarily go together. And it wasn't the idea of simply accommodating, which is what we sometimes encounter in other areas, but actually that it was a part of the coal if it was truly intermingled. Now, the court's reasoning is, I have to say here, it jumps from one point to another, and it requires a careful reading, but I think you'll find that that's what that opinion actually stands for. The other state court decision that is contrary to our position is the Montana Supreme Court decision from just a few years ago. It dealt with a 1984 coal lease, and it distinguished the Pennsylvania case on the basis that that dealt with a 1920 coal deed and said that, well, CBM was not recognized as valuable in 1920, so the surface owner would not have necessarily wanted to hold on to it. That same reasoning would distinguish the 1909 and 1910 Acts. So we think that actually the state law is consistent with the position that, we've, that we are asserting here. And that is one of the things that has led the solicitor to change his view on this matter. Are all these state cases, uh, what are the dates of them? Are they all uh, after 1953? Uh, yes. The, well, the Smoot case is 1907. And that stands for the notion that coal is, exists in a stratum and deals with the pyrite being in a separate state seem within the stratum. The cases that directly deal with CBM are the, uh, the Alabama case, I, I believe it's called the West case, which was decided in the early 90s. These are on page 36 of your brief, footnote 26. I believe that's right, yes. Yes, those three cases, the Montana case, which is called the uh, uh, Carbon County case, and then the Hogue case, which is the Pennsylvania case. Now, I would like to... Uh, to touch upon the point the Chief Justice raised with regard to the question of the canon of construction that's applicable here. We think that the better view is that uh, CBM is a part of the coal. But even if the matter is debatable, we think that you should apply the established rule that ambiguous grants are interpreted in favor of continued public ownership for the reason that Congress has not consciously determined whether or not to give the material issue up, and it should be allowed under the Constitution to exercise its right to make that determination. We think that rule applies equally to the states and private persons, because the, the reasoning for the rule is the same in each case, and that is that Congress is vested with the authority to hand out public property, and it should be given the opportunity, opportunity uh, to make that. You say then, Mr. Minear, that uh, Mr. Davidson is wrong in citing Wyoming against the United States for the proposition that he cited it for? There are a number of different canons that come into to play, and I think it's true that you will find that there are statements that uh, grants, for instance, for schools should be construed liberally, that grants to homesteaders well, should be construed Why shouldn't they, you know, if you want to say a number of different statements, the, the, the things you're relying on are statements also. Why should one statement be elevated over another? Because we think this is the statement, this is the canon that preserves the prerogatives of Congress, which are truly important for the disposing of the public property. And the state's interests are, will be reflected in the congressional decision. If this material remains a part of public property, then Congress can determine what to do with it. 
And in that regard, we note that Congress has already acted under the Energy Amendment to protect the justified expectations of anyone who has drilled. No, but it's not the Congress now that it was then. The Congress then was giving away public lands and was giving away public minerals to say no harm's done. If, uh, you know, we, we interpret the ambiguous thing the wrong way, Congress will fix it. It's a different Congress. It's not the same Congress. It seems to me we ought to just take our best shot at, uh, at resolving the ambiguity. I don't know any basis for saying, uh, you know, no harm done. It's a, it's a, a hundred-year-old Congress. Well, I think this, that the current Congress is better equipped than this Court to deal with some of the issues, the outstanding issues, such as the safety issues arising from CBM development and conjunction. The same decision. I mean, to say that they would make the same decision that a 1909 Congress would is simply is simply false. But they are a better educated Congress. They're a Congress that knows more about this resource that was not well understood. Well, you're, you're, you're just saying that if we decide the case in your favor, maybe Congress will do something equitable. But th that certainly isn't the question before us. The question is what Congress intended. And, and we what said the Congress in 1909 and 1910 intended. Yes. And as I said before, I think the better view is that they viewed CBM as part of the coal because it could not be separate. It could not be separated from the coal at that time. And Congress, this Congress, can deal, if that ownership is retained, with these problems. And, in fact, it has dealt with them in things such as the Enzi Amendment, which has protected the interests, the justified expectations of the states and the individuals. There's no reason to think that Congress cannot make these decisions wisely through the democratic And they process. get back the money that, uh, that on the assumption that was uh, adopted in the 1981 opinion, some uh, — Companies have invested in, in, getting, uh, in getting gas rights that uh, now no longer exist. Can Congress fix that up? In fact, they have in the sense that they have disclaimed ownership of that methane that has been developed in the past. So, in fact, those interests are protected. In the past? In the past. But they paid for rights uh, to take it out in the future as well. It's, I think that the NC opinion respects future leases, any leases that will continue into the future. If someone wants to lease enter into a new lease for CBM development, that would be an issue that Congress would have to deal with. And I have confidence that Congress would deal with it equitably. It would take into consideration the interests of the landowners, the coal companies, the oil companies. This is an issue that is really the, of the type that requires legislative fact-finding. It is just simply an issue that is both complex and there are many different issues, and it's one that Congress has never decided and never addressed. And we, I believe that in our process, in our democratic process, it's quite appropriate. Well, if Congress, Congress never decided it, the, then you, you're, you're saying that the, the 19 things didn't don't speak one way or the other to it? Well, I'm saying that Congress never explicitly addressed it. We think the better interpretation, as I said before, but it has to be an interpretation on either side by implication, is that the CBM goes with the coal, it's the tail that goes with the hide, so to speak, in this situation. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Manier. Mr. Phillips, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, I'd like to first address Justice Scalia. It seems to me that the questions that you asked about the fugacious nature of the gas in, this coal, in the coal demonstrates as plainly as it can be. They have coal, excuse me, gas in three forms, adsorbed, free, and dissolved. They are all the same. They are all extracted the same. There is no basis for distinguishing one from another. Justice Souter, with respect to the means of extracting it, all you do is drill anything that will release the pressure. Now, whether you can economically extract it to the maximum amount of value is a separate issue. All of that arose separately, and there was absolutely no change between 1909 uh, and 1920. There was no economic extraction then in that not, period? Not at that time, no. 
Justice uh, Souter. Uh, Justice Kennedy, you asked the question because it's important to the government's argument. They keep saying this is a constituent of the coal. They say it over and over again. But if you look at 545 to 555 of the Joint Appendix and you look from the macro to the micro elements of every particle of consideration that the handbook on coal identifies, you will never see CH4 because methane is not a constituent of coal. It is found within the coal which is why the government then turns to say, well, it's not the coal, it's the coal deposit, which is not the coal deposit. Really, it's the coal seam and the coal bed. problem is that's not the language of the statute. The statute says coal deposit. Deposit was a well-understood meaning at that time. It didn't imply an entire seam or bed. What it meant was that you had an identifiable quantity of the coal, and that's all Congress gave it. This Court in Western Nuclear specifically held that prior to 1916, the regime was specifically identified minerals. That's coal. It doesn't include any other associated minerals. If Congress had wanted to do that, it could have said associated minerals. It could have said gas. It could have said anything. What it said was coal. That's the right it has, and that's the only right it has. The Court of Appeals erred in extending that to allow these parties to drill for gas. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.